1: Hi, guys. I am Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley podcast. Happy to have you on board with me as always. Thanks so much for being here. As you know by now, this is your go to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals and independent thinkers and happy warriors. Happy April Fool's Day today. So today, you know, believe nothing and trust no one. In other words, just like every other day in Biden's America. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Monica Crowley and on Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore. Again, Twitter at Monica Crowley, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore. And don't forget about our email address for the show, Monica Crowley podcast At gmail.com. I'm getting a ton of fantastic emails from you guys about the show, and I'm thrilled about it. Keep them coming. Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Fantastic show for you today. We're going to deal with uh, Mrs. Clinton, which is always a good time. We're going to deal with Hunter Biden, also always a good time. Later in the show, I'm going to talk to you about Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida because I saw him again last night at a big event for You. He is sensational. But I want to bring up a point about him and his leadership that you have not heard anywhere else. So you're going to want to sit tight for that because it is a critically important point, not just for Governor DeSantis, but frankly for every Republican out there. They could all stand to learn from him, but I am going to tell you the precise reason why. We're also going to talk to New York Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is a Republican uh, candidate for governor as well. He is dynamite. So that interview is coming up. So, so much to get to. Let's get right to the Monica memo. Uh, We did get the March jobs report. And while the jobs number was actually uh, pretty strong, it was weaker than expected, but still Okay, 431,000 jobs added in March. I want to make a really important point about this because at Treasury, we used to talk about this all the time. In the Trump administration, you had tremendous job creation, meaning jobs that didn't exist before were created by businesses of all sizes, but in particular, small businesses, which are really the backbone of the U.S. economy that is job creation. What we have been experiencing in the Biden years is job recovery from the pandemic and the shutdowns and all the jobs that were lost because of the the lockdowns and shutdowns. So when the Biden White House tells you that there were jobs uh, created, that is not true. They are lying to you as usual. These, this is a job recovery operation. So while this was a relatively strong number, 431,000 jobs added in March, these are jobs coming back into the U.S. economy, not jobs created as a function of a dynamic economy. So, okay, we got that. We got 3.6% uh, unemployment rate. Uh, so it does look like Americans are coming back into the workforce. But guess what? A big part of the reason they are doing that is because inflation is so incredibly high and it's getting worse. We got another bad inflation number this week, a consumer price number that is just astronomical. We are at a 40-year high on inflation. And I know you know this because all of you go to the grocery store and you all go to the gas station and the number of that the, the inflationary numbers and the inflationary pressures are so extraordinarily high and destructive that this is going to be a very tough thing to pull out of. And that assumes that the Biden team even wants to pull out of it. I think they like a weakened economy because it creates the kind of chaos that they need to slam into place their bigger, much more dark destructive economic agenda. But that being said, we got this jobs report um, and the White House is is trying to put a good spin on it. But keep in mind that the reason that so many people are going back into the workforce is because prices are so high due to inflation that things are costing so much more that they have to go back to work. They can no longer ride on the government benefits, whether it's unemployment or any other series of state benefits that are tantamount in some states to eighty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 a year to stay at home and just allow the mailbox money to come in. So inflation is driving a lot of people into the workforce, which might look like a good thing, but I have a feeling it's going to continue to exacerbate the wage inflation spiral because people need to make more to to pay for increased prices on goods and then those prices go up. And then you got to go back to your boss and ask for even more money so you can survive. So I think we're in this inflationary spiral and I don't see it any ending anytime soon. This might be one of the reasons why the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has decided to peace out peace out, Saki out, she's going to leave this spring and go to MSNBC where she is going to host a show, which is what I thought she was doing every day from the podium. Uh, She is leaving. It is clear now that the rats are beginning to abandon the sinking ship. We've seen this in the vice president's office because Kamala Harris is such an epic nightmare to work for. Not just as VP, but this goes back to when she was a prosecutor, to when she was a U.S. senator, to when she was California attorney general. Nobody could stand working for her. And so they work for her for like five minutes and then they're like, I'm out. So now it's starting to spill over into the West Wing and we're seeing Saki go. And I have a feeling you're going to see a lot more people uh, fleeing the scene of the accident certainly before November and certainly after November when the Republicans take back the House and the Biden uh, agenda is going to be stopped dead in its tracks. So those are a couple of headlines here. And now I want to turn to how deep the corruption runs in this country. And, you know, it is a miracle that America is still standing. And again, this is a testament to all of us normal people who keep the country going On a day-to-day basis, because the leadership that we have is just so incredibly corrupt, and their eyes are not on us or our interests. Their eyes are on the prize, which is the fundamental transformation of the nation. Obama's words, not mine fundamental transformation of the nation. It is working in conjunction hand in glove with the Great Reset. It is all part of a piece. If they can transform America, they can transform the world. And that's what all of this is about. The corruption necessary in order to get there is deep and profound. And the tentacles are wrapped around every part of our economy, our culture, our politics, our judiciary, our military, our law enforcement. It's everywhere. So let's deal first with Mrs. Clinton, shall we? Mrs. Clinton has spent her entire adult life wanting to be president of the United States. And she has sucked up a lot of humiliations over the years at the hands of her husband and others but primarily primarily her husband, Um, in order to try to achieve that goal. You know, you'll suck up a lot of crap in the course of your life if your eye is on a bigger prize. Well, her prize was always the presidency. And we know that their secret or not-so-secret deal was you first, then me. You be president first and then me. She is literally eaten alive by the idea that two men... Barack Obama first, and then Donald Trump, two men with a better handle on where the country was at any given moment, defeated her for the presidency. She is consumed with rage about that. And in particular, you know, Donald Trump particularly galls her because she so hates his guts, but the Clintons and the Obamas hated each other too, But Donald Trump coming out of nowhere, when Mrs. Clinton has spent her entire life working for this goal, he comes out of nowhere and boom, she's on the ground. This is why she and her campaign engaged in the most horrific, dangerous criminal behavior to defeat and then undermine Donald Trump's presidency and ultimately to try to destroy him. This was led by her, executed by her campaign, and this effort, by the way, is still underway because they think he's coming back, and he may very well be coming back, but this is an ongoing thing. Mrs. Clinton is a corrupt deep state monster who deserves to spend the rest of her miserable life rotting in federal prison. She won't, of course, because everything is corrupt and she's protected by her fellow deep state monsters. She never pays a significant price for any of her crimes. Case in point, this week we learn that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, has fined her 2016 campaign and the Democratic National Committee because they violated federal law in improperly describing expenditures to the law firm Perkins Cooey who then hired research firm, more like oppo research fir- firm, Fusion GPS, to dig up the dirt on Donald Trump and help to create, hatch, and execute two things. One, Spygate, where they spied on Trump in his campaign. And then two, that morphed into the Russia hoax after he was elected president and once he became president. So the FEC has stepped in and find her and her campaign a certain amount of money, but get this, we're not talking billions of dollars, which is the appropriate amount, given what she did to him and his campaign and to the country and to the rest of us. No, they, uh, they got the DNC to agree to pay a civil pen- penalty of $105,000, and the Clinton campaign agreed to pay $8,000. This is a slap on the wrist, guys. Totally meaningless. Mrs. Clinton spend, spends more, Mrs. Clinton spends more on a dinner in Manhattan, especially with all of the Chardonnay she orders. Girlfriend loves a tipple. So this means nothing. She's getting away with the political crime of the century, a crime so outrageous that it's damaged the democracy that the Democrats are out there pretending to love so deeply. It has damaged this democracy, probably irrevocably, all to destroy a man who stood in her way and in the way of the deep state and the the great resetters who are working to transform this country and the world 24-7. Mrs. Clinton and her fellow travelers could not abide it. So they hatched Spygate and then later the Russia hoax to cripple him and his presidency. Of course, they also crippled our country, which for them was an added bonus. So she pays this little fine and skates. Now, maybe Durham will will get her. Maybe that, that special counsel will get her, but don't hold your breath. Trump's Attorney General, Bill Barr, he appointed uh, Durham to look into all of this, but he he was not visible at all on the visible fraud of the 2020 election on Hillary Clinton or Hunter's laptop which they had in their possession. For months, the FBI had Hunter's laptop in their possession months before the election. So while Bill Barr did do some good things, he did not move on the big stuff that really mattered. The DOJ and FBI are shot through with deep state operatives. Remember how we used to say that the bad guys were just at the top in leadership, like uh, Comey and his crew, Andrew uh, McCabe. Well, that's not true. The more we learn about the FBI and the DOJ, we know it is not true. The bad guys are throughout the entire organization. There are some good men and women in the DOJ and FBI, some good patriots in there, and God bless them. But the culture there is rotten to the core. The political and cultural rot is everywhere, including, well, especially in our most sensitive agencies, which brings us to Hunter Biden's laptop, and we're going to cover that when we come back. I'm Monica Crowley, back in a flash. Okay, everybody, listen up. I promise you, I am going to get to Governor DeSantis, and I was with him last night at an event he spoke at. I got to say hello to him and and just watch him in action, and I want to bring up a point here that Nobody else, as far as I know, has raised about him and his leadership and Donald Trump and how this all is working together. I'm going to get to that in a second. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk to Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor of New York, and Lord knows we need his leadership there. But I want to pick up where we were before the break on the deep corruption plaguing America. Uh, and we are, throughout this program, we're going to really spend a lot of time exposing where it is and how it's destroying the country and how we're going to try to fix it. Um, but we spoke about Mrs. Clinton and the deep corruption of her longstanding corruption of her, her campaign uh, in 2016 and her ongoing corruption Which, you know, let's not overlook the possibility that Mrs. Clinton could throw her hat in the ring for the Democratic nomination. Girlfriend wants to be president more than anything in the world, and I don't think she's given up on that. I think she's still thinking that uh, the hair-sniffing invalid who is in the White House now not going to run again, his vice president, who's in a constant state of nervous breakdown, is not going to be president. So she might say, hey, Democrats could turn their lonely eyes to me. Don't underestimate her ability to pump herself up and and may even run again. Uh, And we'll talk about that weeks down the road as that develops. But the other part of the equation here with Biden is Hunter Biden's laptop, of course. And, you know, the FBI uh, said this week in front of Congress, the head of their cyber division was like, we don't know where it is. Roll that clip.
0: So where is it? The laptop. Sir, I'm not here to talk about the laptop. I'm here to talk about the FBI cyber program. You are the assistant director of FBI cyber. I want to know where Hunter Biden's laptop is. Where is it? Sir, I don't know that answer. That is astonishing to me.
1: Have you noticed that the FBI can never find the stuff that really matters? The premier law enforcement agency in the world is now one of the most corrupt ones too. Anytime, whether it's Hillary's emails or Hunter's laptop, anything related to the Democrats, suddenly they can't find. Oh, whoopsie daisy. We don't don't know where it is. Um, Hmm. Yeah. Can't tell you. Have no clue. They have no clue. The Hunter Biden laptop is so critical to where we are with the whole Biden presidency. Joe Biden is compromised perhaps more than any president we have ever had. And he is compromised with three critical foreign entities with which the United States is dealing right now, China, Russia, and Ukraine. As commander-in-chief, Joe Biden is now in the middle of the war between Russia and Ukraine. But you have to ask, given everything we know about the uh, tremendous amount of money that has come in from China, Russia, and Ukraine into the Biden crime family's coffers. We're talking tens of millions of dollars. And this is just what we know now. This is just probably the tip of the iceberg. There's probably like $100 million from these entities sitting around uh, in various bank accounts for the Biden crime family. But now you've got the commander in chief in the middle of the Russia Ukraine war. And you've got to ask yourself whose interests is he protecting? Ours, America's, or his own, his family's? That is a fair question to ask. This is why we need to tear down the entire corrupt superstructure. It is rotten to the core. Everything needs to be torn down, and we've got to start from scratch. The deep state, the permanent administrative state, the entire rotten ruling class has got to go. Pull everything up, root and branch, everything, and start over. It's got to be done. And you know who knew that? Donald Trump. Trump knew it, and he was going to do it. In fact, he started to do it. He started to expose their deep corruption, and they got him. They got him. They undermined his presidency from the start, and they continue to try to destroy him. That's what this January 6th investigation is all about, calling it an insurrection to try to constitutionally prohibit him from ever running again. That's what this is. And it's also a message to any of us normals, don't even think about it. Don't even think about running or wanting to improve America or change the way we do business here because we're in charge. That's the signal they're sending. And you know that that brings me to Governor DeSantis, because last night I attended an event uh, in Florida. Uh, it was an event for Prager U, Prager University, led by the great Dennis Prager which is a great online educational resource for parents who, uh, you know, are, are still have their kids in either public or private schools and they're not sure what kind of education they're getting. And now we know, thanks to the pandemic, a lot of parents are wide awake and a lot of parents, millions are going to PragerU for themselves and for their kids. They've got all kinds of fantastic videos on a whole range of subjects up there at PragerU. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. So this night uh, was all about celebrating PragerU. Dennis was there, and he interviewed Governor DeSantis. And, um, you know, had a couple of minutes with the governor, and then he went up on stage with Dennis, and they had a phenomenal interview. Phenomenal. And, you know, I, I saw the governor a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we spoke at a, the same event, and I spent um, a little bit of time with him then as well. He is incredibly impressive. He's America's governor for a reason, because he is projecting fearless, principled leadership. Florida is leading the way Pretty much across the board, whether it's having a thriving economy, whether it's no more mandates, whether it's COVID or or any other restriction, he has led a free state. And that's why about a thousand people move to Florida every single day. All the red states are gaining. In fact, I'm working on, a, on an op-ed for Newsweek, which I believe will be published on Monday, and we'll talk about it on this show on Monday. But the red states are leading whatever economic recovery we've got going. Uh, the red states are the ones leading the way. And Florida is right there at the top. It's a huge economic engine. And it's in large part because of the leadership of Governor DeSantis. Can you imagine if Andrew Gillum, the Democrat, had won the race in Florida in 2018? DeSantis was talking about this the other night. The entire national pandemic experience would be completely different. Florida lifted the mandates. They lifted the restrictions, no lockdowns, uh, and they moved ahead starting in, what, May of 2020. So almost two years now, Florida has been wide open, doing business, people living their lives, going about their business. Florida has shown a light. It's been a beacon for the rest of the country, but it also put into bold relief what an epic disaster the blue states were with their lockdowns and their mandates. I mean, really? So he made them all look bad. And that's one of the big reasons why he is in their crosshairs and will continue to be in their crosshairs because he poses an existential threat to all of them the way President Trump did as well. He is um, hes an incredible speaker. And you know what? He's, he's so confident in his policy positions and in his own skin that he relates to all audiences. And the audience is, of course, just, go wild for him. You can also tell that he, he served in the military, and he's integrated all of these parts of his life into this, this really powerful whole. So when he's present, he's really present, totally confident and, and poised and forceful and fearless and principled. There is one point about this that I want to make that, I uh, frankly, I haven't heard anybody else make. It's a point that I've been making privately and in, in some cases publicly too. And I think it's an important one because a lot of people talk about President Trump and Ron DeSantis in the same sentence, and they belong there. They're two incredibly different men with different leadership styles, but they belong in the same sentence, and here's why. President Trump, as a candidate and as president, and now out of office, has done incredible political blocking, like a linebacker. He has done political blocking for everybody else in the Republican Party, conservatives, populists, and anybody else who who believes in the America First agenda. By political blocking, I mean... First of all, he's moved like a linebacker in taking all the slings and arrows, all the impact coming at him. He's done that. He's done that very well. But he is also, by doing that, by being strong and taking the incoming and pushing back and fighting back, he has given other Republicans down the line permission to push back. He has given them permission to be fearless to hit back and not care about the consequences. And that you can handle the consequences even when you do get the incoming. He has sort of dispelled this idea that you have to be afraid, right? That you have to live in fear as a Republican, that, that you know, you, you've got to be worried what the New York Times editorial page is going to say. No, Trump gave us all permission to say, no, we're pushing back and we don't really care and let the chips fall where they may. You're not going to hurt me. Here's the surprise too. When Trump started to do that, it, well, he's sort of a different case because with bullies, most of the time when you push back and stand up, they back down bullies usually do. With Trump, he's a different case, so they keep coming at him, and he keeps fighting back. But with most regular politicians, you will see the bullies start to back down if they follow the Trump path. And this is what I see in Ron DeSantis. Now, he's creating his own style with this, for sure. Absolutely. But you see that DeSantis, and to my mind, DeSantis is one of the few, if only, Republicans who have actually learned the lesson from President Trump and taken and and gone down the path of being this this linebacker um, for everybody else and taking this fearless path and not really caring where the consequences, what the consequences are. And if the consequences come, hey, now you've got the confidence to deal with it and push back at that too. It's not just limited to politicians either. This is another critical point. That style, that attitude, it's filtered now down to the rest of us. We've all gotten more gutsy in dealing with the leftists and the media and big tech, and big corporate America, and the woke corporations, and everything else is coming at us, whether it's on social media, or television, or in our own lives, dealing with our neighbors, or a crazy family member, the black sheep of the family, whatever it might be, we have now become emboldened, and it's thanks to Trump. This is now the new right, fearless, gutsy, giving zero you-know-whats. And the left doesn't really know what to do with us now because they're so used to us cowering in the corner and not pushing back and caring about what they said or what, what they did to us. Not anymore. Not anymore. This has been President Trump's impact on us and on Republican leaders. I wish that we had more Republican leaders who actually got the memo. DeSantis certainly did. He got the memo, and he's doing it, and that's a big reason for his success. He's got all these incredible policies that are generating a booming economy in Florida, protecting Floridian children from sexual indoctrination, pushing back on Disney, which is the biggest real estate taxpayer in the state of Florida, pushing back on them. That kind of fearlessness came from Donald Trump. I give huge, huge uh, credit to Trump for blazing the trail and continuing to blaze the trail. And I give huge credit to Ron DeSantis for picking up the torch and running with it. How many other Republican leaders are not doing that? Most of them. And look, I mean, I vote Republican. I like a lot of these people. I respect a lot of these people. But pick up the torch and run with it. He just did you a huge favor by creating the pathway for you and, and laying out the template for you. DeSantis took it and is running with it but many other Republicans are not, and that's super unfortunate. Remember when uh, President Obama talked about the fundamental transformation of the nation? Well, Trump came in, and he fundamentally transformed us. Pretty solid achievement right there, I say. I'm Monica Crowley. We're going to talk to Congressman Lee Zeldin straight up. I am so happy to welcome to the program my good friend, Congressman Lee Zeldin. He represents the 1st District in New York, and he is also a Republican candidate for governor of New York. Hi, Lee. Hey, it's great to be with you, Monica. Hey, great to have you here. Thanks so much. Well, before we get into your race for governor, which I do want to talk about, let's talk a little bit about what is going on in Congress The Biden White House just released its budget, nearly $6 trillion. And as I'm looking at it, Lee, it it seems to me that this is basically the Build Back Better plan from last year, which met a very necessary death. Only now it's got a different name slapped on it, so they've taken a pig and put lipstick on it. Tell us what you see in this budget, what it's all about, including all of the tax hikes in it.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's part of that built back, broke agenda that our country just can't afford. It's a far left liberal wish list. A lot of this uh, during the presidential campaign in 2020, President Biden, when he was competing against people who were trying to outflank him to the left, uh, th- they were subscribing to positions that were out of touch with mainstream America and uh, we saw it with the, the Democratic National Committee uh, the platform, the Biden-Harris agenda. They came out with all sorts of policy ideas, and you just see them coming into office and trying to fulfill certain campaign promises regardless of merit. And, and I would just say, I mean, aside from the fact that our country can't afford it, Uh, The idea that by winning an election, you have earned a mandate to do whatever you want to do on any topic at all is not reality. I I don't believe that many of these ideas were really vetted out during the last presidential campaign. Uh, And I think that it's going to cause far more political pain, too, for the Democratic Party come this November because everyone's desperate to see the pendulum swing back.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And you know, there are so many tax hikes in this budget. Um, And it seems to me, I I know why they want to do it. They're interested in radical wealth redistribution and soaking the rich and soaking corporations and so on. But I can't imagine from a political standpoint, Lee, that uh, the moderate Democrats, those who are left in the Democratic Party or those in swing districts or difficult states for the Democrats uh, come November, are they really going to want to vote for tax hikes? Even if it is just, quote unquote, on the rich, are they really going to want to go down that road in an election year that already looks bad for them?
0: I mean, you, you basically have to give up on your political future, your reelection, if you think that uh, voting for all of this stuff is going to win a purple district, it, especially in a year like 22. I think it's going to be a big Republican wave year. Uh, so for these moderates in districts where – They are not winning by a comfortable enough margin, even when it's in a better year. Uh, They they probably should run away from this as far as possible. And really, what's the one of the things I see in the House, it makes you wonder what's the point of taking some of these votes is that these a bill will pass the House that is DOA in the Senate. And a lot of this proposal is DOA over in the Senate. So the argument's probably going to be made behind closed doors in the House Democratic Conference. Why make us take this tough vote? Because one, this is the political dynamic at home the moment I vote for it. But two, it's never going to become law anyway. Uh, So I I think that there's going to be a huge difficulty getting the votes. Although I will tell you, there are uh, many Democrats here in Congress who are like sheep. And even though they might know it's a bad vote, if Nancy Pelosi tells them that she needs them to vote a particular way, they they go as called.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Speaker is insane, but she's also a very effective Speaker. She knows how to crack skulls and twist arms and get votes done. But these people, these Democrats are walking the plank in increasing numbers. So if they don't get the whole nearly $6 trillion thing, Lee, what – What do you think? How much of this could they get? Is anything going to pass?
0: No, I I think what ends up happening is that the House will end up going through uh, an appropriations process. The Appropriations Committee will start working on on legislation. They understand that the federal government's funded until September 30th, and especially with the way the Senate is so slow. I would bet that a lot of people, especially in leadership and rank and file over on the Democratic side, they're realizing that once you get to the end of September, what's most likely is that you'll see some type of a continuing resolution that might get the government funded until you get past the election. Maybe yes. they want to deal with this in uh, in lame duck. So I, I, I think that you'll see the House kind of go at it alone, start an appropriations process, uh, but understand that... Uh, this is especially what the president's proposing. This is not going to become law uh, before the end of this fiscal year.
1: Well, thank God for that. Um, Is there anything else, Lee, that's on the House agenda that Pelosi and, and the squad and the far left are pushing? Is there any other destructive thing on the horizon that we need to be aware of?
0: Oh, gosh, you know, it's where do we start? But just summing up on a few highlights that we need people to pay attention to. One is uh, you see the United States tripping over itself to try to reenter the faily flood Iran nuclear deal, right. which will be worse than the 2015 deal. Uh, we need that to be submitted to Congress as a treaty. It should be because that's what it is. It'll be non-binding. If it's not, uh, they're talking about rolling back Title 42 and uh, some of the border security protections that currently exist. Uh, So we need to pay attention to that. We need our border more secure than it is. Inflation, supply chain crisis, all tied into what we just discussed on uh, what the president is proposing and and other legislation that might be coming on the appropriations front. Uh, We we just have to stay, uh, you know, on top of our game, especially between now and November as Americans. I mean, I'm not just as members of Congress. I'm talking about Americans, all of your listeners, because we will have an opportunity in just over seven months to achieve balance in our country. And we we have to seize this opportunity. Can you imagine it? You have a House Judiciary Committee with a gavel in the hands of Jerry Nadler and the American people have an opportunity to put that gavel in the hands of Jim Jordan. Just think of all of the oversight, uh, agenda, legislation changes if we do what we need to do November 8th.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and the trend lines certainly look good, assuming that all of the, these races are clean. But that's a topic for another day. We're talking to Congressman Lee Zeldin, represents the 1st District of New York, and he is a Republican candidate for governor. Governor of that state. So let's talk about that race briefly, uh, Lee. You do have a Republican primary, but the polling shows that you are not only leading your GOP challengers, but also at least according to one poll that I've seen, these polls are showing you now leading the current Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul in a general matchup. Tell us what you're seeing.
0: Uh, We're seeing on the ground that regardless of whether you're a Republican, the Democrat, conservative to liberal, Uh, New Yorkers are hitting their breaking point. They're thinking about fleeing. It's because of the attacks on our wallets, our safety, our freedom, the quality of our kids' education. Uh, You have one-party Democratic rule for the first time in my lifetime going into a midterm in D.C., Albany, and New York City at the same exact time. We saw it last November while a lot of people were looking at what was going on in the Virginia governor's race. A lot flipped from Democrat to Republican throughout the state of New York. So the pendulum, in many respects, has actually already swung. The political earth under us has already moved. We have the issues on our side. I got in this race a year ago. I've been endorsed now by the Republican Party and the Conservative Party at their convention a month ago. We we had, as of our last filing in January, 34,000 donations. Uh, We have thousands of volunteers who have signed up. Just on all cylinders, everything is going really well. Now even Andrew Cuomo is talking about getting in, which would only increase our margin of victory if he does. But we feel great about the path that we're on. We are not in this race to come in second. Our mentality is that losing is not an option. And this this is a rescue mission to save our state. And I and many, many other New Yorkers throughout this state are all – all in to win this race, and I'm going to do my part to make sure that happens. Uh, we are going to take back New York uh, seven months from now, and it can't happen fast enough. With all the destruction we read about with the headlines uh, yesterday, the uh, the state legislature with a, a state budget due at midnight, they ended up fleeing, left the state. Uh, I'm sorry, left uh, left the state capitol, went back to their districts around the state, and uh, gave up on the hard work. Uh, We saw a a state court judge, a Supreme Court judge overturn the Congressional State Senate State Assembly maps for being unconstitutional, really just every single day is filled with more developments all working in our favor. But we can't take anything for granted. We have to work hard to win this.
1: Yes. And full disclosure, I have endorsed you. <laughs> so You've got you've got Thank my you, endorsement Monica. and my vote. And I, I did an event for you uh, last summer. And I'm happy to do more for you because I think you're exactly the leader that New York State needs. How do you overcome the intense Democratic vote in New York City? And, and by the well, way, the, wa- the way you answer this applies to all Republicans running statewide in deep blue states.
0: For for one, there's a huge enthusiasm gap right now. The people who want to vote Republican are much more excited about getting out and voting this November than the people who are planning on voting Democrats. The enthusiasm gap is big. In New York, while there are a lot more Democrats than Republicans, there are also millions of people who are registered voters who aren't Republicans or Democrats. And right now, the polling is showing that they're thinking and planning to vote like Republicans. So that's another great equalizer. We need 29% of the vote in New York City. Uh, we don't need to win New York City. It'd be great, but we, we can't lose by more than 40. You go into the conservative pockets, Staten Island, Bay Ridge, Middle Village, Brighton Beach. Uh, you, we continue doing the coalition building to the Jewish voters, the Asian American voters, the Hispanic voters, the black voters. The list goes on. We've been leaning into that heavily since we've gotten into the race. And at the end of the day, we can't lose New York City by more than 40. And I feel pretty good about us being able to get there.
1: Well, I just want to end on this note, Lee. You know, uh, we've seen a trend of populist and Republican and normal Americans getting elected in deep blue areas over the last year from New York City to Seattle to San Francisco. It is possible. And I got to say, even in deep blue areas, People hit a wall. They want change. And I have a great feeling that New Yorkers have hit a wall. And as even if they're devout Democratic voters, a lot of them are going to be willing to cross that line and vote for you for governor. And we got to save yeah. our state. So I wish you many, all many the best. Many Democrats
0: are uh, they're saying that they feel like their party's left them. A lot of Democrats saying they think the party's gone too far left.
1: Yes, indeed. So this is your moment, and this is the moment to take New York State back. So we'll be following your campaign, and we'll have you back. Congressman Lee Zeldin of New York, Republican candidate for governor of that state. Lee, thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. So happy that you're with me. Thank you so much. Remember that you can download the Monica Crowley podcast on all podcast platforms Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, you name it. If you want to write to me, send me an email, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com, Monica Crowley at gmail.com. Also on social media, at Monica Crowley Podcast on Instagram. Plus on Twitter, my personal Twitter at Monica Crowley and my personal Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore. Please join me next week. Catch you next time.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.